All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, this is Nick Freitas and welcome back to Making the Argument. Today, we're going to be discussing, well, we're going to be, we're going to be talking about the PRO Act and Biden's infrastructure bill, but more than that, we're going to be talking about how politicians talk about their bills and how the media often reports on their bills, provided that it's a Democrat that's sponsoring the legislation. So I, I want, in order to do this, I want to frame this up correctly. Because what you hear a lot from politicians when they're describing their policies or when they're describing their bills is their intentions, right? And the same thing when the press reports on a Democrat bill, it's typically, look at all these wonderful intentions, right? And then they just automatically assume that whatever their intentions are, that's what's going to be accomplished through the bill, okay? So I want to give you, I'm going to give you an entirely true statement, and I want you to tell me what you think of when I tell you my intentions. And then I want you to think about how you feel about how I plan to actually carry out those intentions, right? All right, but this is a totally true statement. I'm not lying about anything. Ready? Okay, as a politician, I'm going to promise to lower your property taxes, to increase the fuel efficiency of your vehicle, and to make sure that you never have to mow your lawn again. Now, as you think about those three things, those all sound great. Right? Who, who, who wouldn't want those things? And I mean, after all, here I am offering them to you. But the, the most important question is not, okay, those, those all sound like good outcomes. Those all sound things I like. How do you plan to do it? Oh, no problem. Ready? I'm going to lower your property taxes by burning your house to the ground. Because if I burn your house down, the value of your property goes down, and so you pay less in property taxes. I'm going to increase your fuel efficiency by replacing the engine in your car with a hamster right? Just, just pedals. You can use pedals now because that's going to increase your efficiency, right? You, you went from using a lot of fuel to no fuel. And then finally, in order to make sure that you never have to mow your lawn again, what am I going to do? I'm just going to pave over your grass. Now, go back to what my intentions were, what my promise was. Everything I said was true, right? But would you want me to do any of those things, right? If, if that was the mechanism I was going to use in order to get you to, to the promise I've made, would you want any of those things? Probably not. I'm, I'm going to wager and say, of course not. And the reason why is because the benefits of what I've talked about don't outweigh the cost associated with how I plan to implement the policy. Right? But if all I talk about is the intentions, and if all the press reports on is the intentions, the nice sounding outcomes, without actually focusing on what they're actually going to implement, well, then you can, you can vote for someone with a whole lot of really bad ideas. 
and that's what I, I really want to focus is we're looking at the PRO Act because we're going to use this as an example, but it applies to pretty much any piece of legislation you can look at. All right, like I've said before, <laughs> politicians do not legislate intentions. They write laws, right? They don't so much solve problems as they offer trade-offs. And then you get to decide, or you, you should have to decide whether or not you like that trade-off. But if you're, if you're relying on politicians to be perfectly honest about what exactly they're implementing, or the press to be honest with you about what Democrats are implementing through their policy, I, I got bad news. You're, you're going to end up being very, very confused about the end states or the results from a lot of these bills. And the PRO Act is a great example of this. So what is PRO Act? It's the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, right? Protecting the Right to Organize, PRO Act. And what this bill does, if you look at the intentions, is, well, this protects workers. This makes sure that workers have the right to be able to join a union if they want to. This makes sure that workers are going to be represented in negotiations and get the benefits that, that, they, that they want and so justly deserve. It's going to provide legal protections for workers when they're unjustified or they're uh, unjustly fired, right? These are the things that you are being promised under the PRO Act. That's what you're being promised, okay? Now let's talk about how they plan to implement it, right? So I'm gonna go over, I'm gonna go over a couple of things here, right? I got my notes already. So how are they gonna provide you all these wonderful things? Well, the first thing they're gonna do is they're gonna significantly restrict and regulate independent contractors through what they call the ABC test, all right? So what's the ABC test, three-step test? A, the worker is free from the control and direction of the hiring entity in connection with the performance of the work, both under the contract for the performance of the work and in fact, here's what this basically means. If you're hired to do a job, they can tell you what the job is and, and what they want the end state to be, but they don't get to sit there and micromanage your entire calendar or tell you how to do everything, right? That's A. B, the worker performs work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. And then C, the worker is customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, or business of the same nature as that involved in the work performed. Okay. So A and C aren't necessarily as big a deal. I mean, we could still get into a large philosophical conversation on, on whether or not it's appropriate for government to make this distinction, but A and C is not what people have a lot of pro uh, problem with. Here's what B is. The worker performs work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. So let me give you an example of how, who this would affect. So if I have a, uh, let's say I have a construction company, okay, and I want to hire someone to do my taxes. Right, so I can, I can go outside, I can hire an independent to do my taxes, why? Because I'm a construction company, I don't do taxes. Right, that would be fine under this. But what if I'm a newspaper? What if I'm a newspaper and I wanna hire people to write articles as independent journalists? What if I wanna do that? Nope, can't do that anymore. I'm, I'm now, by law, I am prevented. I would be breaking the law if I hire you to write more than a few articles, like in California when they did this, it was more than 35 articles a year. Right? What if I'm? What if I do contracts and I, and I do proposal and proposals and things like that? And so I want to hire someone to do uh, proposal work, right? And I and I've worked in this field before. Well, does my company have a proposals department? Because if it is, now I can't hire you, or I only have to hire you as an employee. I can't hire you as an independent contractor. What about Uber? What about Lyft? What about a number of the other industries within the gig economy? That, that those jobs are now outlawed unless they put a bunch of special exceptions into the law. And the average cost to an Uber or a Lyft for each driver that they have, and Uber alone has over a million drivers, would be over an additional $3,000 a year 
if this goes through. Now, is, is Uber just going to eat all that? No, they're either going to fold or they're going to fire drivers or they're going to come up with some sort of the contract method because they won't be able to survive under this. Right? So the, the economic argument against this particular policy is, is this is going to have disastrous effects for anybody to, that doesn't fall within the labor category that Democrats want them to fall into. Right? Like Again, I've worked as an independent contractor. It wasn't that I didn't have an opportunity to work as a full-time employee with the company. I didn't want to, and it shouldn't be any of the government's business what sort of work relationship I established with the company. If I want to work as an independent contractor, I, news to all of my, my, the people that want to help me in politics, stop helping. Right? So the economic argument is this is bad because it actually restricts a number of economic opportunities that people voluntarily choose to engage in. It's also wrong, I would argue, morally, because if somebody offers me a job as an independent contractor and I want to do that job, why is it any of the government's business under what conditions I work under? If, if, I, if I want to accept the pay, if they say, hey, I'm going to pay you this much an hour, um, but you're not going to be an official employee, you're not going to get health care, you're not going to do this other stuff, but I'm going, to, I'm going to pay you this much, are you willing to work for that? And I say yes, guess what? I don't need an independent third party that's not engaged in the transaction to insert itself into that discussion and make decisions for me that I am fully capable of making for myself. But that's exactly what the government wants to do under the PRO Act. All right, let's look at another one. This supersedes state right to work laws. So in a lot of states, Virginia being one of them, although the Democrats are trying to destroy that, we have what they call right to work laws, which is to say that you cannot require someone to join a union Right? Or you cannot fire someone because they refuse to join a union. We don't have what they call closed shop. So just because someone decides to join a union doesn't mean they can force everybody else in the company to join the union. Right? But under this, they're going to get rid of that. It doesn't matter that the states have passed those laws. It doesn't matter that this isn't a realm for the federal government. The federal government is now going to insert itself into this process. Now, some people will look at this, and there, there's union members that, that hate right to work because they feel it puts them in a disadvantage. Well, I'm I'm sorry. But there's something called freedom of association. And if you would like to join a union, join a union. I'm, I'm not going to stand in your way. But you don't get to tell somebody else, you don't get to tell your coworker that they're now going to be fired or be forced to pay union dues because they don't want to join your union. But that's exactly what they're arguing for. So the problem for me is not with the union component of this. The problem for me is the government intervening on one side of the negotiating table and saying that you have to do something. So it completely just circumvents all state right to work laws. What's another thing it does? The PRO Act removes right to secret ballots. All right, this is commonly referred to as card check. So instead of people getting to privately vote for whether or not they want to join a union, now they have to publicly do it. So I want you to imagine going to the polls and voting for your representative or for president or for governor and being forced to raise your hand and say, I'm voting for that person. Now, if you want to come out publicly and do it, that's fine. But no, you wouldn't have the option. You would not have the option if the PRO Act passes. What's another one? Forbids the firing of employees who strike. All right, so let's take a look at this. You have a business, right? You, you, you built this business from the ground up. It's yours, and then you have some employees get together, they decide to unionize, they don't like, they think they uh, deserve higher wages, and so they go on strike, and now you can't effectively run your business. Well, once upon a time, you could say that the reason why a strike would work is that if that employer couldn't find somebody else to do the job, 
And now the employer realizes that, wow, based off of the reality of the marketplace, I better pay my guys more because I don't have someone else that can do this job. And so they pay them more. That's how a strike can work in more of a free market type environment. But they don't want that. They want an environment where you can go on strike and then your employer has to take you back. And, and here's what I find interesting about this. This is a little bit like, um, it, it all has to do with how we look at property rights. And there's, there's this view on the left that if you work for a company, you somehow have ownership of that company. No, you don't. I mean, if you own stock or if you put it into your uh, arrangement or you got together with a bunch of other employees and you started a company and you have partial ownership, then you have ownership. But just by virtue of working for a company doesn't mean you have any ownership of the company. That's somebody else's property. It isn't yours. It isn't mine. But now we're treating it as if it is their property. Look, if someone pays me to do a job and I agree to that payment, I think it's, I, I, it, it's obviously enough to entice me to work there. And then I decide that I'm going to strike because I don't think I'm being paid enough. And they're able to immediately replace me with somebody else. You know what that tells me? Looks like I probably was getting paid enough, right? I mean, maybe I don't like that job. Maybe I want to go get a different one. That's my right. But do I have any right to tell the property owner, the business owner, the person that actually put forth the capital, assumed the risk, set up the company, do I have any right to tell that person they have to hire me along the terms that I want? That's not a negotiation anymore. That's me now making a demand of somebody else. And if they don't do what I want, I just go get the government to come in and, and punish them for it. So no, look, if someone wants to go on strike, you, you can do that. I'm not stopping you. But to tell an employer that they're not allowed to fire somebody, that's ridiculous. But again, that's what would happen. The PRO Act also allows for secondary strikes. All right, so what's a secondary strike? Currently, striking is only allowed for businesses that have some involvement, involvement with a labor union. But the PRO Act would allow striking of completely neutral parties. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Anybody can quit their job right? Anybody can, can go on strike. When they talk about currently striking is only allowed the business that have some involvement with a labor union, what they're saying is, is that there are certain protections in place, legal protections in place for someone that strikes as part of a union. Now, there's a whole other conversation on whether that's even appropriate. But now what they're trying to say is not only do you get those protections if you strike from McDonald's, now you get those protections if you strike for anybody that does business with McDonald's. So, so now you can, you can carry out those strikes to just about anybody. Let's look at another one. Oh, this one's great. It erodes distinctions between franchise and franchisees. All right, so again, let's use our McDonald's example. Not every McDonald's is run by corporate McDonald's, right? So there are, there are individual owners. Sometimes it's an individual, sometimes it's a group of people that will invest and buy a McDonald's. And being part of a franchise does a couple of things for you. One, you already have supply chain issues that are, are run um, or, or that are, are organized in part by that corporate entity. There's marketing and branding that goes with that franchise, okay? But when you work for a franchisee, you're working for that person, the person that owns that McDonald's. It's not like you're working for you know, corporate McDonald's. But what they want to say is that they don't really want to make a distinction between franchisees and franchisor. So here's the problem with that. You're now creating an environment where if I'm a franchisor, I'm put into a horrible position because if I, get, if I sell you a franchise 
and you go out and do it, and then someone wants to, you know, or, or, or if uh, someone goes up against you, now I can be responsible for the things you're doing with my franchise. So there, there's a distinction that, that has to be made, but the PRO Act would essentially get rid of it. All right, what's another one? Requires federal arbitrators to impose terms of labor contracts. This goes into another issue with the PRO Act as well. What this is essentially saying is that when you enter into labor negotiations, they have to be solved within a certain period of time, or the National Labor Relations Bureau comes in, which, by the way, under the Joe Biden administration, is going to be completely pro-labor. And now this is not a negotiation between employer and employee or employer and union. This is a negotiation between employer, union, and government. And then the government can come in and force one side to agree to a contract. So at this point, what recourse do you have? Right? Like if you're, if you're the union and, and you want to go ahead and drag out the negotiation so that the federal arbitrators can come in with the National Labor Relations Board because you know they'll have your back, well, then it doesn't pay for you to sit down there and negotiate with your employer. You might be able to get more if you get the feds involved. There's, a, there's the uh, result on that. All right. <clears throat> allows businesses, no, sorry, requires, requires businesses to allow their property to be used for union purposes, right? So you run a call center. If the employees that are a part of the union want to use their computers and their phones to engage with union business, or they want to uh, meet within your offices, you have to let them. You no longer have that control over your property anymore. You have to let them meet there. You have to let them use your equipment to organize. You have to let them do all of that, right? So this is no longer something where if you want to join a union, join a union. This is something where no, I want to join the union. You better let me join the union. And then I'm going to use your property in order to engage in union business. Is that fair? All right. Guilty until proven innocent. This is another, I'm going to read this one off. If a union accuses an employer of violating labor election rules during an organizing election, the employer is guilty until proven innocent. This is the exact opposite of how cases usually work in the criminal context. In that area, it would mean that someone accused of theft would need to prove they were innocent instead of the state proving they stole something. Worse, as also noted above, the employer would not be before a neutral judge, but rather before the, neighbor of the National Labor Relations Board, an entity that is highly political and during certain administrations biased in favor of unions. So again, we're now putting businesses in a position where when they have a dispute with the labor, when the labor union makes an accusation, they're guilty and they got to prove themselves innocent, essentially. That sound fair? That sound like due process of law? That sound like the legal traditions we typically use within this country? All right, violating attorney-client privilege. The PRO Act would force employers to disclose that they are receiving legal advice from attorneys on unionization issues and also require the attorney to disclose that they were paid for this information. So again, that time-honored tradition of attorney-client privilege? Nope, not when it applies to unions. Right? You have to disclose all that information. If you're, if you're seeking legal advice because you want to understand how to navigate this monstrosity, you got to disclose all that. And, and people ask, well, what's the big deal there? Well, let me ask you something. If unions or the government is going to come down and essentially intimidate you through the law in order to get what they want, do you want to be the attorney representing someone that is trying to defend themselves against a powerful union or the government? All right. And then this all leads to increased penalties because, you know, how do they actually enforce all of this? Well, again, I'm going to read it off for you. Job creators could be on the hook for large civil penalties under the PRO Act. These penalties could be levied personally against officers or directors of an employer. 
Simply not informing workers of their rights could cost $500 per each violation. So let's just say you're a small business, you're, you're bringing people in, you don't actually you know, put something in the, in the contract that talks about all their, their rights to join a union, you could get a $500 penalty for every single case. Violations could be as simple as an employer not having an employment law sign posted or not replacing one that was taken down. So let's say you post one and then somebody takes it down or it falls off and falls under the bench. Well, you can be fined for that. Larger penalties for employee firings or other serious economic harm could be up to $50,000. Penalties could be doubled as much to $100,000 if an employer committed another violation during the previous five years. So again, you, you had one dispute. You took that dispute before a federal arbitrator at the National Labor Relations Board that's already predisposed to support the union. You get a $50,000 fine. You're fine for the next four years. No problems. Then you have another issue. What do you do? Guilty until proven innocent. You got to prove it before a judge. Nope. You got to prove it before, again, a board that is probably not going to be favorable to you. And now it's a $100,000 fine. Let's just, so, so again, going back to what they originally said, right? We're going to protect employees. We're going to make sure they get benefits. We're going to provide a mechanism for them to be able to unionize and to organize in order to fight for better wages and better benefits. That's what they told you they were trying to do. And that, what I just described, is how they plan to do it. So, are the benefits worth the costs? Because this is the part where we're going to get into an economic argument and a moral argument. Right? Again, the larger overall economic argument is, there's a general principle. If you make something more difficult to do through taxes, regulations, fines, fees, and bureaucracy, you will typically get less of it. You will typically get less of it. So from an economic standpoint, does this make it easier for businesses to start up, to hire people, to expand, to run their business in a way that is responsive to customers? Does this make it easier to do any of those things? No. Does it make it easier to hire and fire people in accordance with how well they do their job? No. Are, are business owners living under the weight of never knowing whether or not they're going to be fined for something, even if it's a simple mistake, even if it's not through, through any sort of malicious intent, even if it's just an oversight? Are they going to be more afraid of the fines and fees that can come down and punish them as a result of doing that? And will that in turn disincentivize people from starting a business if they think they're going to be forced into these sort of labor contracts? Yes, it will. What about independent contractors and all those people that want economic opportunities? Which, by the way, the number of people that work as independent contractors in this country is almost the same amount of people that actually belong to private sector labor unions. About 10 million people. Are you now going to make it significantly more difficult for them to find work under the terms and agreements that they want? Yes, you are. So... Somebody show me the, the overall economic benefit to this. You are making it more difficult to do business. You're making it more expensive to do business. You are, putting, you are putting people that are willing to take the risk to produce goods and services that we all want in a position where they have to be terrified of the National Labor Relations Board. You are making it more difficult to engage in contracts with employees. You are treating business owners like it is not their property. It's not even their property anymore, apparently. And you're doing all of this to benefit who? Well, 
seems obvious, right? Because all of the major labor unions want this. And what percentage of the American workforce works for labor unions or is involved with a labor union? About 8 to 10%. It varies. 8 to 10%. The biggest unions are public sector employee unions. And what do these unions want? They want you to be compelled to join the union and to pay dues or lose your job. I'm sorry, does that sound like an organization that is really trying to support the working person? An organization that says, we're going to require you to join us and we'll negotiate on your behalf, but you have to pay us. Not, they're not saying, hey, join this union because here's what we're going to offer you. And if you pay us, we can provide you these benefits and these services, but you don't have to, right? Just like any other business. Here's my question. Here's my question for all the union bosses that think this is a good idea or think this is fair. Can any of these companies go to their customers and require them to buy their products and services? And if they refuse to buy their products and services, take them to court? No, they can't. But you think you should be in a position to tell a business owner, you are required to hire, to negotiate, and to pay our employee, their employee, based off of what you determined to them using the force and coercive power of government. And then you're going to require that person to buy your services. You're going to require that employee to buy the services of the union, regardless of whether or not they want to. And you know how I know that most of them don't want to? Because when they actually passed the Janus uh, decision in the Supreme Court, and they said it was unconstitutional to require someone to pay a union as a condition of employment, the amount of money going right to the union dropped significantly. Like 70, 80% of people that were no longer required to pay those union dues didn't. So no, I'm, I'm, I'm sick of hearing this narrative that the union cares about the working person. If you care about the working person, don't require them to pay you. Only have them pay you if they actually want to join your union and they actually like how you're advocating on their behalf. But that's not good enough, which is why you want the PRO Act. And that goes into the moral argument. So the economic argument is that when you look at all of this, you are requiring people to pay and join an organization that they might not want to join as a condition of employment. You're making it significantly harder for businesses to be able to operate. You are destroying independent contractor jobs that people want. You're setting up a level of bureaucracy which is tilted in, in one person's favor on the negotiating table. None of that is good for economic development. None of that is good for expanding economic opportunities. That's the economic argument against this. The moral argument against this is, is pretty simple. The first question I would have to ask is, why is it any of AOC or Joe Biden or Abigail Spanberger or anybody else, why is it any of their business what sort of a negotiation or work arrangement I have with a company that I am willing to work for based off of the benefits they offer me? I, I don't want politicians coming in there and saying, well, no, no, they have to offer you this and they have to offer you this and they have to. No. They have to offer me what I'm willing to work for. Because they can't force me to work for them. That's a voluntary transaction. And if I think I'm getting a bum deal, then sure, I should be able to, I, I can join a union. But do I have a right to tell all of my other fellow employees that they have to join it as well? 
Because the argument they come back with that is, well, then now you've got the free rider component. People don't join the union, they don't pay the things, but they get a, the benefit of the union negotiation. It doesn't have to be that way. You could theoretically have a shop where some people are unionized, some people are not. And the union only negotiates on behalf of the people they represent, just like most things in the world. But that's not good enough. Because this is about using force and coercion to compel both employers and employees to operate in such a way that union bosses and the politicians that they bankroll tell you you should operate from. And there's something antithetical to individual liberty, to free markets, to freedom in general. Again, if your service, if the service that the union is providing is so dang good, then you shouldn't have to compel anybody to join it. You shouldn't have to coerce anybody to join it. So that's, that's the moral component. It's the coercion factor that they're using force to get what they want instead of actually convincing people to do what they want. The other moral component of this is, again, they are treating businesses as they're some sort of jointly owned endeavor. I have worked for a lot of companies. I've owned none of them. And I had no right within my position of employment, within the nature of my employment, to suggest that I owned that company because I worked there. I worked for one company for seven years. I didn't own any of it. And it was not my business to. And guess what? I wasn't looking to own any of it. I was happy with the pay and the benefits they were giving me to do the job. But the idea that because I worked there a long time or because I did a good job, that that somehow entitled me to any ownership of that company is garbage. I didn't set up the capital for that company. I didn't work really hard to, to build that company from the ground up. I might have been a component to it, but guess what? I got paid to do that. I didn't do it for free. I didn't do it out of the goodness of my own heart. I did it because they paid me to do a job I wanted to do at a rate I was willing to do it for. It doesn't convey ownership to me as an employee. So the idea that, that you would erode or pretend that property rights should not factor into this is also not only an economic component of this argument, it's a moral component. Because essentially what you are doing is telling someone that, yeah, you know what? I know you may have sacrificed years of your life building something from the ground up. But the moment you hired me, I now have some sort of co-ownership with your company. No, you don't. And to demand such, and to use something like this, government power and coercion, in order to secure for yourself something that you did not earn, is immoral. So that's the PRO Act. And the worst part about this from a legislative perspective is they knew, they, they passed this through the House. My congresswoman was a, a co-sponsor on this. But they knew they couldn't get it passed through the Senate. So now what's Joe Biden doing? He's trying to sneak it in through the infrastructure uh, bill. So this is wrong on so many levels, economically, morally, unconstitutional. And, and, and a complete departure from the typical process, legislative process we use for actually debating and voting on this legislation. But this is, this is once more about cramming down an agenda. So. The next time they tell you they're doing this because they're going to help workers. They're going to make sure they get good benefits. They're going to allow them to negotiate. 
They're going to get them better salaries. That's what they're telling you they're going to do. But what I just described is how they plan to do it. And if you think that's fair, I got to be honest with you. I have no idea what definition of fair you're using. So keep that in mind when this issue comes up, because I guarantee you there's going to be people that watch the news or listen to the congressperson talk about this, and their congressperson is going to sit there and they're just going to talk about their intentions. This is what we want to accomplish. And what I want you to do is look back and ask them, like, that's really interesting. I, too, want to take care of workers. I, too, want workers to be fairly paid. I got a question. How do they plan to do that in the PRO Act? How, do, how does this lead? What, what are they going to implement? What sort of policies do they implement? Laws, rules, regulations, fees, fines. What are they going to put in place to implement the intentions you just mentioned, because I'm willing to bet most people, most people are not going to know the answer to that question, but now you do. And that's where you go through the list. Do you think it's okay to do this? Do you think it's okay to do this? Do you think it's okay to punish people for this? Do you think this is reasonable? Do you think it's okay to tell the, the, the young woman that started a coffee shop that she can now be fined $100,000 under this criteria? Do you think that's appropriate? That's the part where we start to change minds is when, we, is when we tear back the curtain of flowery rhetoric and supposedly good intentions and we reveal what they actually plan to do. Just like I said before, I can lower your property taxes right now by burning down your house. I can give you more fuel efficiency in your car by taking out your engine and replacing it with pedals. But would anybody want those things if that was the mechanism we were going to use to get it? No. And if this is the price that we have to pay, and by the way, it shouldn't be, but if this is the road Democrats want to go down in order to quote unquote protect workers, then I'm willing to say right now that the benefit is not worth the cost. The trade-off is not a good one. The best way that we can actually support workers in this country Support laborers, because I do know what it's like to work for minimum wage. Let's provide an environment where there are as many economic opportunities as there are good ideas. But you're not going to do that when you have this sort of regulatory environment, this sort of fines and fees environment that essentially disincentivizes people from actually going out there, having a great idea, assuming risk, and putting everything out there to make their dream come true. And then through that process, offering other people gainful employment to come along and help make it happen. Let's not punish that behavior. Let's support it. All right. Thank you again for joining us on Making the Argument. Um, I want to let everyone know, we, we post these on Facebook. We post these on YouTube. If you make comments on there or, you, or if you want to make some comments, I go in, I check them, I respond to comments. We actually, you know, we've, we've gotten some good feedback. We've developed some shows based off of the feedback that we've received before. So go on there, leave a comment for us. Uh, like, subscribe. If you're listening to this on a podcast, real quick, when you're done, if you're driving, I usually listen to my podcast when I'm driving. When you park, pick up your phone, go to Making the Argument with Nick Freitas. Give us a five-star review real quick. Share this with your friends. Again, thank you very much for joining us. Hope this helped. And we'll be back next week. Next week, uh, we, got a, um, we got a special guest. We're having Tina come back on. It's actually our 22nd anniversary. And so we've got, a, we've got a plan. I'm such a romantic. We've got a plan for our 22nd anniversary. And a podcast, it should be next Thursday. We're going to be talking 
um, about a whole host of issues, but we're going to be talking about what we did for our anniversary, which I'm sure you're all dying to know. But Tina's also going to share some insight on what it's like being a conservative woman in politics and a conservative woman candidate in politics. And she's going to actually share some really interesting information by how she was treated by some of the male feminists on the left. How did they treat a conservative woman? All right, that's coming up next Thursday. So make sure you stay tuned. Once again, thank you very much. And we'll see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.